the, the main function of diplomacy is to have smooth relations around the world. And of course, you can always have smooth relations if you never complain about the way other countries treat the United States, how they treat our businesses that want to trade or invest there, how they treat our citizens when they come to visit, whole range of issues that might be covered. Uh, I don't think that's the purpose of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of, of countries, of the State Department for us. It's to advance our interest around the world, advance and protect our interest. Uh, and that means sometimes you're going to have to say things that make people unhappy. My guest today is Ambassador John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton served as Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security and United States Ambassador to the United Nations under President George W. Bush. And he also served as the 27th United States National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump. Throughout his career, Ambassador Bolton has been a staunch defender of American interests. While Under Secretary of State, he advocated tough measures against the nuclear weapons programs of both Iran and North Korea and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction worldwide. I recently sat down with Ambassador Bolton and we talked about his views on the United States and the world and the fallout from the U.S.'s humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan. Ambassador Bolton, thank you so much for being on the show. I want to tell you I've been a big fan of yours uh, for close to 20 years when you served in the U.N. I think it was 05 or so, uh, right. I mean, right? 05 or so. so uh, you know, I, you were the first person from Washington, I think back in the day, that I could actually understand what you were talking about. And to me, in my small neck of the words, you made a lot of sense. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to know that, uh, that people are listening to what anybody says in Washington these days. Well, but we, we were certainly listening to you. So like, there were so many things I want to talk about. And I was, and, you know, I was so excited when I heard that you're going to be on the show. And um, the, the first thing that I want, I want to start with, forget about modern day uh, politics and, and geopolitical, our view in the world and how the United States should be viewed according to, uh, to Ambassador Bolton. I want to first get to something which I find totally fascinating. How does a kid born in 1948 in Baltimore to a father who's a fireman and a mother who's a regular housewife, right, in post-World War II, grow up to be a conservative where you're handing out leaflets for Barry Goldwater in the 1964? How, how does that transformation happen? Well, I don't, I don't think it was a transformation. I think... Uh... Uh, for, for many, many years, uh, people have assumed in a very Marxist fashion that what your political views are are determined by your socioeconomic circumstances. So if you're born into a blue-collar family and your father's a union man, then you're going to end up a Democrat. Now, interestingly, my mother always said we were a middle-class family. I mean, it didn't bother me or my father to be a working-class family, but my mother said we're yeah. a middle-class family. She would sometimes concede a lower middle-class family, but she wasn't going to let let go of the middle-class thing. And uh, I think it's it's the uh, what they taught me was that uh, I didn't have to be a, a lower middle-class guy uh, for, for the rest of my life, and that. Uh, there wasn't any limit to what uh, I could do if I worked hard enough at it. And my father, I think like many young men who were in World War II, uh, had a very uh, protective view of the country, a very patriotic view, uh, and certainly that influenced me as well. Now, you know, when I went through high school, I read a lot of philosophy. I was very interested in it. I read a lot of Marx. I read uh, big chunks of Das Kapital, hard as that is to imagine. Uh, and uh, the Communist Manifesto, and I was horrified by it. So I was I was moved, uh, moving in a conservative direction, and I was uh, I was fascinated with people like William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, but most of all, I was fascinated with Barry Goldwater. I just thought he was the cat's meow, and uh, that's that's how I got involved in his campaign. And then just to seal the deal, uh, when I got out of high school, I went to Yale in the late '60s. And there were maybe a handful of conservatives out of 4,000 undergraduates. I don't know. There may have been 50 or 60 you would legitimately call conservative. And listening to the liberals, listening to the liberals on the faculty, listening to the students for four years, that's all it took. Yeah, you know, what I find, what I find so amazing is you grew up in the, probably one of the most turbulent times in American history 
where uh, people were burning draft cards. There was the first time where there, there was such uh, animosity towards our country. Uh, it used to be our country right or wrong. Here it wasn't the case when you were growing up uh, and going to school, uh, high school especially, and, and, and then when you get into college. You, I, I was thinking 40 to 50. I think you could put all you folks in a, a small coffee shop. There weren't that many uh, uh, who weren't burning draft cards or protesting uh, the Vietnam War. In fact, you were for the Vietnam War. Right. That was that was another kind of anomaly. But uh, mm. but a lot of it, I think, had to do with the uh, the, the general culture at Yale uh, and the idea that they were sort of oppressed and, and this small, tiny minority when, in fact, you could walk around the Yale campus for days on end and never find anybody who disagreed with the, the prevailing ideology. So you were standing up against the wind in, in a big way. And, and it's it's so. So why did you gravitate towards Barry Goldwater? Well, and, and not, well, Ronald Reagan uh, at the time was not as well known as Barry Goldwater, but w- what, what drew you to him? Well, uh, I first got acquainted with Ronald Reagan. I'm leaving aside the Death Valley Days uh, TV show. <laughs> but he gave what turned out to be a very famous TV speech, a half an hour long speech, a few days before the 1964 election. And uh, mm-hmm. e- even to devoted followers of Goldwater, it was pretty clear by that point he was going to lose. But suddenly here was this guy, Ronald Reagan, who gave one of the best speeches I've ever heard for half an hour on television, just Reagan talking. Uh, and it became clear he was uh, he, he was the, he was the next uh, new thing, so to speak. What what attracted me about Goldwater? Uh, he, he wrote two books that I read, The Conscience of a Conservative, which was about his domestic philosophy and a second book called Why Not Victory. Uh, and, you know, he had me at the title when all these people were talking about how difficult the Cold War is. And, we, you know, you needed uh, accommodation with the Russians and peaceful coexistence with this philosophy uh, of Marxism that I say I'd read quite a bit about and uh, and was appalled by. And Goldwater, all he had to do was ask the question, why not victory? And people didn't have an answer for it. So uh, uh, Goldwater also had a reputation, well-deserved, I think, for saying, exactly what was on his mind. And uh, uh, and he was not afraid to be the only dissenting voice in the Senate from time to time. Uh, there was a saying in Washington then, you know, politicians hate to vote. It's like standing out in the rain, especially when you're in a minority. They said Barry Goldwater lived in the rain. And I thought anybody like that had to be qualified to be president. So you work for Barry Goldwater as a volunteer, right? You're not, you're not getting paid. Right, I was a kid. I handed out leaflets <clears throat> at the polling place. Okay, so you're handing out leaflets. You're going around for Barry. But already your trajectory in life is not the typical, right? So you're, you're a minority uh, who are going to Yale, who have these kind of views that you have, and you see the world as a totally different place than those, your classmates, right? They're looking at defeat. They're looking at a country that, uh, that has peaked, or so they think, and it's heading on a decline. And Europe and the Soviets, the Soviet Union is a just an alternative or a different form of government, not a cruel empire, which it was. And I remember it, probably at the time people were carrying around books of uh, Mao Zedong's Little Red Book. No, weren't they? Uh, that was your time as well, right? Well, that was sure. That was the time. I mean, pe- yeah. people thought that the, uh, the Cultural Revolution was the wave of the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then you and then you move on. I think a little after that, you intern uh, work in the White House. I'm not sure for Spiro Agnew. Right. I was a White House uh, intern before it became a powerful, well-known position. And uh, I was I did that between uh, my first and second years in law school in the the summer 1972, the time of the Watergate uh, break in, as a matter of fact. And of course, shortly after I left, uh, Agnew was indicted and convicted of bribery and whatnot. But Mm -hmm. Uh, and I didn't go to jail for Watergate or, mm-hmm. or bribery. I like to say that uh, I emerged from that internship poor but unindicted. Mm-hmm. So, so you you worked for Spiro Agnew for what two years or so? Was it two? Or? Well, I just worked there during the summer. Oh, but uh, I, I had watched his what he had uh, his criticism of the Legal Services Corporation, one of the Lyndon Johnson Great Society programs, and I wrote my note for the Yale Law Journal uh, with with a classmate of mine on how legal services lawyers by keeping tenants in apartments in New Haven without paying rent, preventing them from getting evicted, had a harmful effect on the low income housing 
market in New Haven because it was driving small landlords out of business. Right. It's not too different from today yeah. with this eviction moratorium. So some poor guy who owns a house that he's divided into three apartments, not getting any rent, what's he going to do? He's going to sell the house and those apartments won't exist. Right, right. He still has to pay maintenance and he still has to pay real estate taxes and he's getting no rent roll. Uh, just around right. Okay. So you then become a lawyer. You graduate from Yale. When do you feel that, What at what point do you wake up and you say, you know, government service is my calling? Well, I had considered it for a long time. I originally thought I would go into the foreign service. Uh, I thought that would be a career path, but I, I decided that uh, I read a, uh, uh, a study uh, when I was at Yale by a, what was then called administrative sciences uh, professor named Chris Argerus called Some Causes of Dysfunction Within the State Department. And it basically was a study of uh, the Foreign Service and how members of the Foreign Service couldn't stand confrontation. They would go out of their way not to disagree with each other or with foreign governments. And the more I thought of it, the more I thought the Foreign Service ought to be where you're advocating American interests, not avoiding conflict because your personality isn't suited for it. And I thought, I am not going to be happy in the Foreign Service. So I thought law was another alternative. But, you know, the big choice for many lawyers at uh, Yale Law School when I was there, when you graduate, is you're going to work in New York, you're going to work in Washington. And uh, uh, I, it was a hard choice for me, but I decided to work in Washington in part because I knew that would that would uh, bring me much closer to politics. And you also had your classmates, I think, was uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton at the time. And uh, was it Bill Clinton also? Uh, or just well, they, they were they were a year ahead of me. But uh, Clarence Thomas was a classmate. In fact, we lived in the student housing one floor above one another and used to talk uh, over over late, late hours in the evening when we should have been studying down in the laundry room in the basement of, uh, of, of our building. Well, that must have been something, huh? Young Clarence Thomas uh, and, and, and you just hanging out, huh? That must have been. That must have been a lot, a lot of fun conversations back in the, uh, was it early 70s or late 70s? Uh, no, early, early 70s. Early we, 70s. We surprised a lot of people. I mean, you, if you haven't mm. read Clarence's uh, memoir, My Grandfather's Son is what it's called, uh, I really urge you to take a look at it and, and uh, everybody listening because it's a, a very graphic demonstration of how somebody, uh, speaking of strange backgrounds to turn out to be a conservative, uh, reading uh, how Clarence grew up, uh, and it, it will be very clear how he turned into the uh, philosophy that he has today. Yeah, yeah, it's just so amazing. The formative years and, 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 the, and, the, and the experiences that certain people go through uh, change them dramatically, and really like you as well, it sets in motion your, your life's trajectory. You realize where you've been, and you build, have a great foundation, and like you said in the beginning, a union father and, and, and a middle class, you would think it would be X you, because you fit in that box. But what you saw was not, what your experiences were, were, they don't fit perfectly in that box. Well, it was another disproof of Marxism. You know, he yeah. called it economic determinism and uh, depended on what class you were in that was going to determine your views, your future and everything else. Uh, he was wrong on that like he was on pretty much everything else. Yeah, yeah and proofs in the pudding, huh? 1989, it was all over. <laughs> okay. So, so now, I, I just wanted to get the background because I've, I've listened to so many interviews and I've written, read, read so much of your writings. I never got that, that what was going on from like 1948 to 1970. Thanks for filling that blank in for me because it, it, it really shows what type of person and, and where your views come from, which, which I think is, uh, uh, which, which uh, you know, I would say they're, they're novel, they're different, but they're so pragmatic that it kind of smacks you in the face says, said, why are we doing this? You know, here's the problem. Here's my solution. Let's not pussyfoot around the problem and let's get to it. But before we get into that, let me get into that. Your first, uh, it was it was under George, um, uh, it was 2005. So George W., right? You become uh, UN um, uh, ambassador. Right. Is that, I don't know, in, in the scheme of things, is that a great job to have? Is that is that an important job in the foreign, under this, uh, it's under state, right? It's under the State Department? Right, right. How is that viewed in the whole hierarchy of state like is that a good position bad position stupid position what is that yeah well it depends on the administration the democrats typically give it cabinet rank 
which is a big mistake because the Secretary of State's the cabinet officer for, for the department. I viewed it mostly as a damage control job, although there were certain things we had to get done. Uh, but it was uh, uh, very challenging because so much of the hidden agenda uh, had some kind of anti-American uh, bias in it, uh, or if not explicitly anti-American, uh, anti-Israel or against other American allies. So it was very challenging. I didn't expect to accomplish much while I was there. I hoped and, and uh, expected to try and minimize the damage to the United States. Well, you stood up to bullies, that's for sure. You didn't take any, you know, you, you, didn't, you didn't suffer fools gladly. It, it seems like that's the kind of job where you come home each night and just have, I need a stiff drink because it's, everyone hates you and they're trying to find reason. And, and, and here we are giving many of these countries money, most of these countries money. And they're coming and kicking us in the, in the face. Yeah, well, actually the first job I had other than the Agnew internship in government was I was at the U.S. Agency for International Development, our bilateral foreign aid agency in the beginning of the Reagan administration. And uh, I did a, I was in charge of policy and budget for AID. I did a study of uh, voting records in the U.N. General Assembly. And I thought what I would do to show we were serious about not getting kicked around was we would cut foreign aid budgets to countries that consistently voted against us. And this, this caused great turmoil at the State Department because they thought, my, my goodness, that's just, that's just terrible. That's, that's telling people they can't kick the United States around. That will complicate our diplomacy. Uh, but I took it up to New York and I showed it to Jean Kirkpatrick, who was our ambassador at the time. She thought it was a great idea. And um, uh, so we, 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 uh, we had a big internal battle at the State Department. It didn't, didn't get very far because they, they basically just didn't want to do it. But that's the kind of thing that you need to do to shake up uh, bureaucracies. And uh, in fact, I got I got a going away present from AID that sort of it was given to me because it embodied what they saw as my philosophy of government. Is that the grenade? <laughs> yeah, I would expect that, right? So it says here, John R. Bolton, truest Reaganaut, AID 1983. And to describe it to people listening, it is a hand grenade on a little uh, a platform there. Yeah. So no, that's, you know, if you want to get stuff done in government, uh, you have to be prepared to uh, uh, to run into opposition. And uh, if, if you're not facing any opposition, you're probably not getting anything done. So to an average guy like me who was never in politics, who just reads, I read the Wall Street Journal, I could understand what's going on. Uh, I don't need a PhD to figure out right or wrong. How is it possible that the State Department and the UN ambassador aren't in sync when these countries are kicking us in the teeth and then taking our money? How, why do you say why do you say there's a conflict there? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is the idea that the, the main function of diplomacy is to have smooth relations around the world. And of course, you can always have smooth relations if you never complain about the way other countries treat the United States, how they treat our businesses that want to trade or invest there, how they treat our citizens when they come to visit, a whole range of issues that might be covered. Uh, I don't think that's the purpose of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of, of countries, of the State Department for us. It's to advance our interest around the world, advance and protect our interest. Uh, and that means sometimes you're going to have to say things that make people unhappy. You know, I was I was uh, trained in, uh, as a litigator, practiced law for many years. And when I was interviewing for jobs in law school, one partner at a big firm in New York said to me, uh, well, you want to be a litigator? That means more than half your day on almost every day, you will be talking to your opposing counsel who want to do nothing better uh, than to rip your client's lungs out. Now, are you sure that's what you want to do? And I thought, what a great description. Uh -huh. I'm ready to go. So unless you're prepared to to uh, uh, to defend and advance the country's interest, I, I, I don't know what the purpose of the diplomacy is. When you have countries that the, are, the, are the epitome of evil, which are killing their citizens, uh, subjugating them, causing uh, havoc in their regions and throughout the world, how can there possibly be any meeting point that a civilized country can have with such uh, such evil? Well, it's a it's a good question, and there isn't a good answer to it. I mean, I, I'm even even now after a lot of years of doing it, 
I'm thinking that uh, that there's something to the proposition that authoritarian governments, uh, terrorists, pe- people like that, simply have a different version of truth than we do. Uh, and this is a real problem inside the State Department, the Foreign Service, what uh, goes by the name of mirror imaging. So you're a reasonable guy. You, 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 you go out, you see a problem with another country, you want to sit down at a conference table and work it out. I mean, surely there must be a reasonable way to compromise and and uh, eliminate the problem. And you look at the guy sitting across the table from me, he's dressed in his coat and tie, and, and you say, geez, he, he, he must think the same way I do. In the meantime, if the guy across the table uh, comes from an authoritarian society or is a radical or extremist, he thinks you are the depraved representative of a debauched and declining society that ought to be kicked onto the trash heap of history. And his, his goal is to do anything he can to make that happen. Now, that's not what negotiating with the Brits is like, but it is negotiating. It is what negotiating with a lot of our adversaries is like. And so when they make a commitment, and this is to sort of the epitome of success at state, we reached agreement on X. Okay, well, well, that's great. Is the other side going to live up to it? Do they have the slightest intention of honoring their commitments? Or for many of them, is that just, again, the beginning of the negotiation? Uh, and I just, I think the State Department has a cultural problem that way. Uh, and if I ever had the chance, I would try and spend a lot of time to fix that cultural problem. Because until we do, we're just not going to be represented as well as we might be. But a lot of very, very bright, able people at the State Department who have been overwhelmed by this culture. It's like Warren Buffett said, you can't make a good deal with a bad person. And uh, no matter what, you know, the Iran deal, which we'll talk about in a second. But what boggles my mind is you sit down and you read the paper and you just watch the news. And it seems like, why are we even negotiating with certain uh, characters on the world stage, they are bent on the destruction of our way of life. They're bent on, on, on destroying uh, everything the United States stands for, bent on killing our people through terrorism and, and, and causing damage to our allies. How is there even, where's the mutual uh, point where we can say, okay, I give here, you give there. How could one do that? I, I, just, I just don't get it. Maybe, I, I don't know, now you're telling me that the State Department doesn't get it either, which makes me even happy, which it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, well, it, uh, it 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 stems from the fundamental difficulty some people have in uh, appreciating that the, the the job of the U.S. government is to protect its own citizens. We're not engaged in some kind of uh, a global project to make uh, to make a perfect world. Uh, we will we will make progress through the clash of ideas and and. Uh, you know, it's just basic democratic theory. You elect the government of the United States. They're supposed to look out for us. The normal citizen can't spend significant parts of his or her time worried about diplomacy. And if the diplomats themselves uh, don't recognize that they have a mission and an obligation, uh, we're, we're going to be in uh, increasing difficulty. And that, that's very clear, I think. And that's, that's why we're here. Uh, uh, just, just before we go a little further, I just want to tell me if I'm wrong on this. Uh, it's also a time frame. When we're dealing with our adversaries, their time frame is measured in decades. Many times our time uh, our time frame is measured in months or days. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we see this now. You know, the, the Chinese have an incredibly long uh, strategic horizon. Uh, they talk, uh, there's been a lot written really about the 100-year march that they want to go on from taking control in 1949 to 2049, where may well be the objective is global hegemony, uh, meaning meaning we're a second-rate power by that point. Um, whereas we're obsessed with quarterly reports and, and, uh, in, in SEC filings, things like that, we're, we're driven by very short-term considerations. Now, for the United States, look, it's a national characteristic. We are very impatient people. And that has its pluses and its minuses. The plus side is Unlike our European friends, we don't manage problems. That's not what we're about. We're about solving problems. Mm-hmm. Not, not that we always mm-hmm. succeed, but that's, a, that's the mindset. The, the, the disadvantage is you can get frustrated. Uh, so in Afghanistan, after 20 years, uh, we're pulling out because people say it's an endless war. 20 years is the blink of an eye. Uh, the Taliban themselves had a saying 20 years ago, I think is when I first heard it, the Taliban would say about the Americans, you have the watches, we have the time. And that, that's a big problem for us. And, you know, unfortunately, they were, they were right. 
They're right. They just waited. They just you know waited it out and continued on and uh, and and it was this was an unforced error. The evacuate evacuation. I can't even call it that. Uh, our our humiliation in front of the world was really just enough already. And let's pull out without any thought as to what the repercussions are. Well, huge repercussions inside Afghanistan. We're going to see that more and more in the coming days. But the biggest problem is both Trump and Biden thought that uh, if, if you looked at Afghanistan, really all of Central Asia, got India, China, Pakistan, Russia, Iran, all, mm-hmm. all uh, uh, Tajikistan and, and uh, Turkmenistan, formerly part of the Soviet Union, but Russia right behind him, you have to imagine it as a, as a big messy pile of pickup sticks. And what Trump and Biden thought was, well, we want to get out of this endless war, just going to reach in and pull out the American stick, and then we'll be out and nothing else will change. Well, that's just fundamentally wrong. It's a very complicated environment, uh, and we have made a real mess of it uh, in ways that uh, it's really even impossible for us to foresee at this point. You know, with the pull out of Saigon in 75, the humiliation that we suffered there, uh, forget about what was done, impossible to forget, but it's so sad, what was done to the, our allies who supported us by the North Vietnamese, uh, they came in and they slaughtered these people. <clears throat> but just a few years later was Pol Pot killing a third, a genocide, a third of his people. This, this is something that we could have prevented if there was some type of long-term planning on how to extract ourselves from Vietnam, No. Yeah. No, I think, uh, uh, look, it's uh, it's part of the problem of uh, democratic society uh, in, in the sense that you, you have an election, elections have consequences, and, and they should. Uh, but it but it makes it harder when you don't build a consensus that uh, we, we did have for a time in World War II and in, in the years after World War II, there were obviously differences, but we had a pretty good consensus in, in the Cold War. Uh, I think that's gone now. It's very partisan time. Um, but, but it's worth looking for ways to get, uh, to get back to that. You know, the Germans, e- even the Europeans have longer term horizons than, than we do. The, the Germans, in fact, have a, a word for the patience you need in negotiations. And it's called sitzfleisch. And it means exactly what it sounds like. You just sit there and, and sit there and sit there and you don't give up, you don't compromise. Whereas the Americans, I've seen this over and over again, uh, literally start looking around at the clocks and watches and saying, we got to wrap this up. we got to wrap this up. Once you're in that mode, you're, you're going to lose that negotiation. Yeah, you do stupid things like an Iran deal. Uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's, so but we, we did have a consensus, uh, and I think you'd agree, after 9-11. You know, I'm in New York, and I remember uh, that time. There was no Democrats, Republicans. We were all Americans. It was a really trying time uh, as we're burying 3,000-plus people uh, from the World Trade Center. And, uh, you know, going into Afghanistan and what uh, President Bush was doing was, uh, you know, preventing terrorism from spreading and having a base in order that there should never be another 9-11. So I think people forget that after the 20 years of all this, uh, you know, our, our involvement in Afghanistan. It wasn't, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't nation building. We were just not giving, uh, you know, harbor, safe harbor to, uh, to terrorists. Well, that, that was the fundamental objective. I think I think we did engage in nation building, and honestly, we wasted a lot of money on it. Oh, which is uh, where did where did that ever work? Where did we ever get that right? This nation building concept. You know, you can't you can't move a people in a direction you want them to unless they're ready to do right. it themselves, right. and then you can help. Or, you know, in uh, uh, in some cases where they were on that road before, and you just kind of put them back on the road. Uh, but, they were, but, they were, we, but they were already on the road. They already got that taste. They want that. For us to go into a country and tell them, we're democratic, we want you to be a democrat, to a country that never even had a, a history, any, any type of relationship with this type of, of a form of government. Nope, this is us. This is America. Ham-fisted, coming around. Where did that ever work? Yeah, well, it doesn't. You know, John Stuart Mill, uh, uh, in, in his famous essay on representative government, describing the preconditions for success at uh, democracy, said the people must be willing to receive it. Uh-huh. And right. it comes for different people at different times. It's no knock on anybody uh, if they're not willing to receive it, if they're not ready. Uh, and we can't force them to do it. And we shouldn't worry about the fact that we can't. We're pursuing our interest. 
but we gave Afghanistan a lot of collateral benefits. They're going to disappear now. And I'm sorry for that. Uh, it, it wouldn't have taken much to stay with a relatively small force, but we had two presidents in a row, Trump and then Biden, who both for years, for years had wanted to get out. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bear the consequences for a long time. What concerns me, and I want you to tell me that I'm totally wrong on this. <clears throat> what concerns me is the Taliban taking over Afghanistan once again, and right next door, you have Pakistan with nuclear arms. That combination keeps me up at night. Tell me I'm overreacting. No, look, I, I felt this was one of the main arguments that I used with Trump uh, to, to urge that we keep a military presence in Afghanistan, not just to uh, prevent the terrorists from taking control there, but to watch what was happening in Pakistan, to watch what was happening in Iran. Uh, and the fact is, uh, and I've written on this, the, 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 the government of Pakistan has been moving in a more radical direction, particularly the military for many years. They supplied Taliban with arms, weapons, secure bases in, across the Pakistani border. They've built up terrorist groups that move against India, uh, attack the Indian parliament two months after our 9-11. Uh, try to undercut the Indian government in Kashmir, which Pakistan thinks should be part of Pakistan, uh, and they pursued nuclear weapons. So the more, the, the the greater the possibility of Pakistan being run by their equivalent of Taliban in Afghanistan, the more in danger we are of that kind of government giving individual nuclear weapons to terrorists. Which you know you don't need a ballistic missile. To deliver a nuclear weapon, you can put it in a tramp steamer and sail it into New York Harbor. Uh, you can bring it across the Mexican border. You can deliver it in a lot of ways. Uh, if that happens, that that is very, very threatening. And uh, it's why proliferation in Iran, proliferation in North Korea uh, is a concern, not just because of the danger uh, in Northeast Asia with North Korea or the Middle East uh, with Iran, but the risk that countries like that, who are authoritarian, extremists, would give those weapons to people they thought could hurt the United States or, or ally, our allies, they would not hesitate to do it. Yeah, we saw North Korea helping Syria build a nuclear reactor until right. the Israelis blew that up. So <clears throat> these people are not shy about helping the enemies of the United States uh, arm themselves with any capabilities they have to have a nuclear strike uh it's it's just so frightening to me because all of this is like is like a, a kid's game compared to what really could happen 9 11 was is could be just a small footnote as compared to what can uh god willing never happens uh um uh but but it's possible that's what scares me right well that's why uh you know there are many many things wrong with the iran nuclear deal but but even if it didn't exist uh, when people say, how, how soon could Iran have a nuclear weapon? Uh, the answer is probably 48 to 72 hours if it sends a sufficient wire transfer to Pyongyang uh, and gets a nuclear warhead or two coming back by return cargo plane. Uh, that, that's, that's what proliferation is all about. It makes everybody more unsafe and, and then incentivizes others to try and get their own nuclear weapons. And, uh, and that, that, it remains a big danger for us. It's not just the threat from China or Russia. It remains the threat of nuclear weapons proliferating or chemical weapons or biological weapons. That's that's what COVID should teach us. You know, they used to call, still do, biological and chemical weapons the poor man's nuclear weapon. And uh, I'm not saying China did this deliberately, although I do think the evidence points to a leak from a lab, and you might want to know why they're doing that kind of biological research to begin with. But let's face it, the world's performance on COVID uh, has not been very good. And if you took the experience that a terrorist or a rogue state could gain from what happened in the past year and a half uh, and build it into an attack plan with Ebola or a new coronavirus or any of a number of other uh, very dangerous pathogens, uh, you, you could see a significant threat to the United States and its allies be very hard for us to respond to overnight literally overnight look what happened to this country yeah. overnight the way the economy shut down the way people it just so so why do people what do people get wrong about john bolton that they call him a warmonger what are you saying here that 
you, you, I'm not the first guy to ever ask you that question. And why, why is that? Why are they thinking? Why are they saying your views are warmongering views when we're having a discussion here? And I'm not a diplomat, never served government, and I'm just a regular guy listening to what you say. This all makes sense. What don't they get about you? Well, I think, <laughs> I think in large measure they just don't pay uh, adequate attention. But I do think there's also a cultural difference. Uh, uh, that, that I would describe this way. There, uh, everybody agrees that the primary way to resolve international problems is through diplomacy. Uh, the, the, the difference with me and let's say many people in the foreign service is that uh, I view diplomacy as the answer. And remember the old Ivory Snow commercial, I view diplomacy as the answer in 99.44% uh, of the time. And many of the diplomats view it as the answer 100% of the time, and it clearly cannot. So if you talk about the world's trouble spots, you're going to talk about the potential for conflict because uh, take India and Pakistan, they've had several wars and come close on other occasions since independence just in 1947. Um, and uh, it, it shouldn't surprise anybody that that's on people's mind. If you're worried about the main threats to the United States uh, and its friends around the world, you're worried about adversaries that are prepared to use force to get their way. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, it's, uh, it, it's also a mark of our time. People like to talk in bumper stickers. They engage in ad hominem attacks. They don't deal in substance. That's not unique in American history. I think we go through cycles. Sometimes it's worse than others. I think we're in a particularly bad period now, fueled by social media where you know, you can you can fire off a message. You know, you can talk about what somebody says without having to read the op-ed or listen to the speech or the interview. You can read a tweet about what somebody said about what I said and attack the tweet and attack what they the tweet says I said, even though I didn't say. It. Yeah. What 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 gets me is that <clears throat> watching our uh, I, I don't know what to call it. Our withdrawal is what's the proper word of what we do? What are we doing in Afghanistan now? How would you call it? Retreat. Retreat. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, sadly, you know, just all these, you know, 2,400 men and men and women defending our country who died there and, 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 the, and the countless, who knows how many uh, of, of our Afghan allies uh, died over the past 20 years. It's just, it's just so disheartening. It's, it's just terrible. Just absolutely terrible. Um, but we're back in the pre 9-11 period. Yeah. I, I think we're uh, worse. Yeah. I think it's worse now. We're worse than 9-11 than pre-9-11. Well, we've got both Al-Qaeda and ISIS yeah. to worry about. We, we have two. We have yeah. two. And, 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 and more will come. And Iran is way more developed uh, now than it was in, in, in 2011. Uh, North Korea is, is way more advanced as well. Uh, so, uh, okay, let me put that aside for a second. What You have a vast amount of experience. You're a pragmatic guy. You are an ally of the United States. You depend on the United States for security. And I'm talking about Taiwan. I'm talking about Israel. I'm talking about Europe. And you see the way we just treated an ally. We've been there for 20 years. The way we were treating, the way this whole process is going down. How are you sleeping at night? <clears throat> well, not very well. What I, what I try and tell our foreign friends is that Trump was an aberration. I wouldn't draw any broad conclusions from his presidency in terms of foreign or defense policy or domestic policy or the future of American politics. He was an aberration. Uh, hopefully uh, he's not coming back. Uh, and uh, you, you should just kind of set that aside. Biden uh, is a product of the American political system. And uh, Bob Gates, the former secretary of defense, said it right. He can't think of a single foreign policy issue Biden has ever been right on. In 47, uh, so, 47 years. <laughs> so, so Trump and Biden agree on pulling out of Afghanistan. But that doesn't mean there's a trend. These are two screwy events uh, that have unfortunately come together uh, in, in close conjunction. But it's not anything people should try to generalize from. Uh, the, you know, the best thing I can say is the famous... Uh, uh, saying the, the British had sometimes attributed to Winston Churchill, but he said, uh, somebody said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing, usually after they've tried everything else. So we're in the trying everything else. People just, uh, period, just give us a little uh, time here. We'll get it straight. How do you see this playing out with China? Uh, and how, how do you see China now uh, um, watching this debacle taking place? Uh, 
knowing that they had their sights on Taiwan for, and they're building up and they're becoming much more aggressive uh, over the past several years. Uh, how do you see them? What would be your next chess move if you were China? Well, I think uh, you have to look at China as the existential threat of the 21st century. And just as the, the Chinese government is expert in planning long-term, we've, we've got to think in, in longer time horizons. But I don't think we should minimize this. And the, the people talk about a second Cold War. It's nothing like a second Cold War to our detriment. With the Soviet Union, we had almost no economic contact at all. So isolating them, really uh, going toe-to-toe with them, caused us no economic pain. That's not going to happen in the case of China. They're counting on it. They're counting on our, our, our materialism, really, to overcome our strategic thinking. Uh, and we've got to put that aside. It's going to be a difficult exercise. The, the one silver lining from the coronavirus is I think the American people uh, understand, and this is true, surveys show this in Europe and Japan as well, that China's obvious cover-up of the origin of the virus and, and everything else has caused opinion about China to tank in the United States and around the world. So people are now waking up to the other threats we face from China, military, economic, political. Uh, and that's a good thing. We, 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 we can protect ourselves. We can prevail. We're coming from behind, but we've got the time if we apply ourselves. Given the present administration, do you think they would, uh, based on just what we've been seeing, do you think they'd step up to the plate and protect Taiwan? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, political reporters like to talk about splits in the Republican Party, Trump versus the non-Trumpers and so on. Uh, what, what I've seen in the past uh, month or so in, with respect to Afghanistan has shown a huge split within the Democratic Party uh, of people who understand the consequences of Biden's decision, carrying through on Trump's decision to get out of Afghanistan. And I, I think this is an opportunity. I do think we've got uh, a pressing need for a big debate on China. People need to understand things like Huawei is not a normal telecommunications company. It's an arm of the Chinese state. Uh, uh, and, you know, they're not uh, they're not kidding around in Xinjiang. They're carrying on a cultural genocide against the Uyghur people. They've suppressed democracy in Hong Kong. It's a lot to talk about. Uh, for example, in coming to the defense of Taiwan, we need to explain why? We need to get the American people ready for it. And there are plenty of good reasons. If you want chips for your computers, probably manufactured in Taiwan, uh, quite apart from the fact they're a free country uh, and have depended on us. So it, this is very important. And I think this is how we overcome the problem of the short attention span. We've got to talk about the big picture and protecting American values against uh, competition from the authoritarianism that the Chinese government represents. But now with America, the way we acted, and we're acting now with Afghanistan, isn't that shaking our allies to the core and saying, my gosh, they might not be here for me? Well, I think it is with some of them. And I think I think that <clears throat> underlines the nature of the problem we've got. And uh, uh, I think that's why it's important if you look at public opinion polls, uh, whatever people think about uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan at some point, they've looked at what's been happening. And Biden's opinion is is going down very, very significantly because Americans uh, don't like watching America being humiliated and they don't like self-inflicted mistakes. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's hard to find anything good in this. But there is one lesson to be learned. You just have to think what the consequences are of your action. Like Tony Blair said, don't follow simplistic political slogans. Yeah, yeah. Last thing, I just want to wrap this up because, uh, you know, you're a breath of fresh air simply because you, you look around and you say, how come no one gets it? And it's good to hear that you get it. <laughs> you were able to articulate it well. The Middle East. Uh, we had the Abraham Accords, which seems to be moving in the right direction. Yet Israel's face with uh, Hezbollah in the north, uh, Hamas, which is an arm of I Iran in Gaza, shooting missiles on, on the, on the um, Israeli population centers. And um, uh, the Arab world moving closer to, I wouldn't say democracy, because that's not really what they're looking for, but more of an understanding of, of Israel being a player in the Middle East and being an equal 
uh, a, a member state, which they have never viewed. How do you see that playing out over the next several years under this administration, especially given the backdrop of what we're seeing now? Well, I don't think there's any doubt Iran has hegemonic uh, aspirations in in the Middle East in in terms of geopolitical uh, control, in terms of religious domination inside Islam. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the nuclear program, but it's also their support for terrorism. Remember, Iran was was the first government to be declared a state sponsor of terrorism by Ronald Reagan during his administration. That's how long this has been going on. Uh, and their conventional military activity in, in Iraq, in Syria, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, using the Houthi rebels in Yemen to mm-hmm. fire missiles and drones at uh, civilian, civilian airports <laughs> in Saudi Arabia Amazing. and the United Arab Emirates. The, the, the Abraham Accords are a reflection of the fundamental tectonic shift in the Middle East. I think it's inevitable that more Arab governments uh, recognize Israel. I think we're going to see it. Uh, I think the pace will speed up here uh, because they recognize they're, they're in it together against Iran. And, uh, uh, you know, that, that, is, that is a force really more important than, uh, than, than anything else we might have expected. You know, I think it's a mistake for the United States to say we want to get out of the Middle East because we need to focus on China. We're, we're a, a, we are the uh, preeminent world power. We have to be able to walk, chew gum, and say the alphabet at the same time. We can deal with China. We can deal with the Middle East. We can deal with Russia. We can do it all. Uh, and still have time left over. And we just have to apply ourselves. And, uh, you know, I hope hope the rising generations understand that. Those of us who grew up in the Cold War faced a clear uh, threat to the United States. We're still in the process of understanding the, the threats we face now, and a lot of people still don't. So to me, that just underlines how much work there is to be done. Wow. Yeah, true. True that. Last thing for you, Ambassador, what keeps you up at night? Well, actually, nothing keeps me up at night. I don't. I don't worry about things that way. I've got a long list of problems around the world, and uh, if things started keeping me up at night, I wouldn't get any sleep at all. Because because people have missed the point uh, about the end of the Cold War, where where we had a peace dividend. Remember that uh, we were we were we had the Washington consensus. We had reached the end of history. Uh, not true. And we had a surplus. We had a surplus in the budget. We, we were close to having yeah. no national debt yeah. at, at Amazing. one point. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was a very mistaken view of the world. 9-11 woke us up in a major way, but here we are 20 years later. A lot of people obviously didn't get it at the time or forgotten it or too young to remember it. But it, uh, there, there's never an easy day. And uh, uh, the, the framers used to say the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And it's still true today. Yeah. Wow. 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 All right. Ambassador, by the way, uh, your dream job, I'm just asking this. I'm not telling you a mess. Would that have been secretary of state? Uh, sure. Well, it's, uh, you know, my career isn't over yet. I love it. Love it. That's what we need to hear. Oh, I'm so happy. But look, 2024 is just right around the corner. Right. So, uh, yeah. Right. And yeah, now, you, now you would, you now you're see. you know what it is? You've lived long enough and seen enough things where people are starting to say, you know, this guy happens to be right. <laughs> you know, it took you that long to, you know, Reagan was out in, in, in the boondocks for so many years until the country woke up and, and said, this is our guy. But uh, right. he was up from, what, 64 trying to, you know, doing this. And it took him until 1980 to get on the national stage in a big way. Wow. Ambassador, is there anything else you want to just close with? Because uh, I, I could talk to you for hours. Is, is there anything that make me feel good? I, I don't sleep at night. I'm worrying about all these things. Well, now that I know you're snoring, that keeps me. That gets me even more nervous. So, <laughs> give give me something to feel good about. Well, I think the fundamental promise of America remains very strong, despite the the difficult times we're in now, and and uh, they are pretty bad. We've seen worse. People have got to remember that the Civil War was a uh, a near fatal uh, episode in, in our history. Uh, but but we overcame that and we will overcome other problems because that's the nature of the people who came to this country. They, they, they came with hope uh, and we have never lost that. You ever wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, gosh, I came from Baltimore. My pop was a fireman. My mom's a housewife. And here I am dealing with the world players. Is, where else could that happen in the world? Other than Only America? in America, yeah. no doubt about it. 
So you're not only just a phenomenal statesman. You know, I remember reading somewhere that the difference between a statesman and a politician, politician cares about the next election, statesman cares about the next generation. And everything that you've written, that everything, well, let me put it this way, everything I've ever read that you've written, you take a long-term view. You, you do something, you do second and third level thinking. If this happens, this happens, this happens, this will eventually happen. And I, I don't, you don't see, much, you know, in investing, you do the same thing. You try to anticipate two or three moves ahead. And it's, it seems like that short-termism that, that, that our politicians and foreign policy leaders have been doing for so long, it's just so obvious that it hasn't been working. Well, it reduces our options, and and that part part of what we're looking for now is to is to correct the past mistakes uh, in situations where we don't have a lot of uh, room to maneuver. But that doesn't mean that uh, that that it's hopeless. It just means you have to be creative. Yeah, we just keep doing a lot of unforced errors. We keep putting you know we're in the positions we deserve to be because we put ourselves there. Well, there's a there's a depressing saying that people <clears throat> get the government they deserve. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope hope that's not right. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Ambassador John Bolton, God bless you. Keep doing, keep fighting the good fight. Uh, you, you just keep getting more, your, your, your thoughts keep getting clearer. Your message is, it doesn't have to scream anymore because it's, it's playing out the way you said it would play out. And, uh, you know, don't listen to you at, at our nation's peril because you've been playing this out and you've played this game long enough. You know how the players work. And uh, hopefully... Um, uh, the people in power realize that. And, um, uh, you know, like you said, we've had a lot of adversity over the past 200 plus years. We're going to overcome this because the American people are pragmatic people. We're a decent people. See what's happening when I ran in Afghanistan, uh, Marines taking babies. Think about my wife looked at that picture in the paper and I'm looking at it from the look at our Marines. Look at our look at how great these aren't soldiers. These are dads and moms. And she looked at it from the other perspective. She said, you imagine what it is for a mother to give their infant to a stranger, what the fear is to do something like that? And, 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 and as a Jew who, who, whose family was in the Holocaust, uh, uh, I totally get that. I, I see, you know, to give up everything to so your children aren't, aren't, aren't thrown into the gas chamber. These people are giving their children to strangers to care for them, these, these military people who they never see or never know again. And and look, what, what it, it's just amazing what's on the ground over there that we have no idea yet of, of all the stories that are going to come out of this. Yeah, it shows what we're squandering when we ignore that. And, uh, and what people, after we have essentially betrayed the Afghans, they'd still rather have their children live with us. Yeah, with, with, these, with these oppressors, yeah, America. Ambassador John Bolton, all the power to you. Keep fighting the good fight. Uh, you know, thank you for your service to the, to this country. You could have made a zillion more dollars being a CEO of a big multinational company, flying private jets, but you chose government service. Sometimes I'm sure you wake up and say, "Why the heck I do that?" But 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 uh, from 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 one citizen uh, to, to another, thank you so much for your service. You've done great for us. Well, thank you very much. Great to be with you. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.